beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. Joshua, how are you today? I'm doing good, Sean. It's, uh, it's been a while since you asked me. I'm a little tired. This is an early morning uh, podcast we're doing, but hey, it's well worth it. Yeah, you've been working on some of those techniques to get you uh, nice and chipper in the morning. Eh? Yeah, I started drinking a thing called tea. <laughs> <laughs> You're a relative uh, newbie to caffeine, right? <laughs> I am, yeah. it's uh, Someone told me I should become an adult, so uh, I decided to uh, take up the, the coffee and the green tea. So I just forgot to, to take, take it this morning. Yeah, you got to remember that. <laughs> You're also doing uh, cold showers, right? <laughs> Trying that out. Yeah, that was the other big thing. I don't know why we're talking about this, but yes, I take showers. <laughs> and uh, I used to be always hot, and they always used to be like lethargic during the morning, and they would pick up during the afternoon. And then uh, Jay Perry actually came over, and he said, oh, he uh, what he does is he has a hot showers, but then he has uh, he does cold for about uh, 30 seconds afterwards. And so I've been doing that, and it's actually been helping because it makes you alert again and want to get out. <laughs> That's great. Welcome to the adult world. Um <laughs> So let's get into today's podcast. We have on today Heather Stang, and she is the author of Mindfulness and Grief, uh, now in the second edition, and the host of the Mindfulness and Grief podcast. She has a master's degree in thanatology and is certified yoga therapist and meditation instructor. Her own journey of love, loss, and post-traumatic growth fuels her passion for teaching bereaved families and grief professionals how to use mindfulness-based techniques to cope with grief, cultivate resilience, and prevent burnout. Heather is on the advisory board for the highly regarded Military Family Survivor Organization Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, or TAPS, and has appeared on the award-winning television show about grief, Open to Hope. She is also the founder of the Mindfulness and Grief Training Institute, where she teaches meditation for grief online and the Frederick Meditation Center in Maryland. Heather, welcome to the podcast. Thank you both for having me. I'm happy to be here. So do you drink coffee or tea? <laughs> both. And, you know, I was listening to that and it, it's I have a, a fresh cup of coffee here. I'll do about two cups of coffee in the morning and then usually one in the afternoon unless I'm teaching meditation at my center. Um, when I'm working with people face-to-face, -face, I only drink decaf tea. Heather's got a plan. Yeah. She's adulting full-time now. <laughs> and uh, I'm like that too. Like if I, I, I'm like you. I like to overload my caffeine in the morning, mm -hmm. get that boost, and then maybe, maybe if I feel, you know, not so good uh, during the rest of the day, I'll take it. But I, I definitely stop before maybe 4 p.m. because I, I just don't want that effect in my sleep. That's really important. I talk a lot about grief-related insomnia, which is part of why I love this topic of grief dreams. And I try to practice what I preach and not drink caffeine after about 3 o'clock. I definitely, I think because I'm a, a yogini and a meditator, I'm really in my body. And so I can feel how caffeine impacts me like mm. I'm, I'm very attuned to it and i want to help myself get those dreams and help my clients get them too so how did you get started in this journey was it did you have a loss and then you went to the yoga and meditation or was it the opposite way around where it's like you had your yoga and you were trained in meditation then someone died so my first major loss was when i was seven years old my <laughs> uncle died by suicide 
And so I wasn't practicing yoga yet, although I do have memories of my mother and I doing like a PBS, uh, which in the U.S. is like a, a national channel. There was like a yoga program on that we would do when I was really little. But when when I was older and very much adulting, I'd started a web design business, which is totally unrelated to this right now, but I actually got diagnosed with a stress-related illness called shingles. And that's what led me to yoga and meditation. And it was while I was in my yoga and meditation training, during which, by the way, I gave up caffeine, I got in touch with that grieving child that was still very much a part of me, but that I had been ignoring for decades, literally. Um, I mean, I knew that was part of my loss. I, I continued to have kind of a relationship in my heart and in my head with my uncle, but I had not tended to my grief in the way that um, that I do now. So it was while I was in that training, I got inspired to get into the suicide prevention field and I started working on a suicide hotline. And that's what led me to this career. So the grief came first and then the yoga and then the and then, you know, making it my life's work. Oh, that's interesting. What was it about yoga that, I guess, uh, triggered you to start uh, feeling that way and, and getting you to start overcoming some of those uh, things that happened to you earlier? I think primarily when I started doing my yoga practice, I got quiet and I started really paying attention to myself, really hearing myself. And my emotions bubbled up to the surface because up until then, I'd been kind of powering through life. And definitely while I had the web development company, I was not wanting to hear the stress from my body. So I was probably drinking way too much coffee. I was definitely drinking too much alcohol. I was just go, go, going. And I wasn't listening to myself. And when I started doing yoga, you know, I got I got much cleaner in my habits and all that inner wisdom came up and it was both beautiful and painful all at once. You know, it was just this cracking open. And I think there's also something about yoga and meditation that makes you feel more connected to your other humans around you. And, you know, I just had this urge to go do something good with my life instead of just being all about me. And, you know, that just, it was like, I didn't even have to think about it. I just woke up one day and was like, oh, I'm going to go call the the local suicide hotline and see if they're accepting volunteers. So quiet space and inner wisdom, I think all kind of came together. Wow. Yeah. That's, uh, I definitely feel that I'm, I'm, um, starting to get into yoga and uh it's definitely something i mean the instructor was kind of guiding us and telling us about how you know just into your body and and feed your body you know along with the breathing and everything that's involved so i could see how you know something could be triggered in a class mm -hmm. um you know i had in my even in a class that i was at you know at the end where they kind of bring it down you know uh, you're, you're cooling your body and it gets really dark and quiet uh, that's that really is a very um, amazing time because it gives you the op opportunity to uh, get uh, in touch with your body. Absolutely. I used to run a weekly class 
and I, I still should run this weekly class at my meditation center in Frederick, Maryland. And it was just called relaxation for grief. And all we did for 45 minutes is people would lay in what we call savasana pose. That's where you're laying on your back and you're just, your arms are resting, your legs are resting and lots of props. So those of you listening, you can try this at home. We'd put, you know, bolsters under the knees and just get people under soft, warm blankets. And for 45 minutes, the class would just lay there and I'd lead them on a relaxation meditation, which when you're in those early days of grief, the body is just in this cycle of stress. And so whether you attend a regular yoga class or do something like that relaxation practice, without having to think your way through grief, which is pretty much impossible, you can actually get your body back online so that the stress switch goes from on to off. You kick in that relaxation response. And like you said, it's just this, it's a pretty amazing experience when your body goes into that state because it impacts your mind, it impacts your heart, it impacts your sleep uh, in a positive way. Yeah, I would imagine during a traumatic event like a loss, you're, you know, you would kind of go into that fight or flight mode. You know, you have things to do. You know, uh, we can't just, a lot of us can't just stop everything and just focus on ourselves. Like we're working or taking care of kids, maybe, you know, taking care of everybody around us, you know, have all these, you have to still have bills to pay. So I would imagine that your mind and body kind of, have to do certain things, you know, that fight mode and have to kind of push things to the side when it comes down to healing. So, you know, again, like in, in a yoga class, that would be, you know, a good opportunity to kind of reset yourself. And I just, again, like, I just love the the fact that for grievers, there's lots of different things available and whatever suits you, you know, maybe if yoga doesn't suit someone, then maybe meditation, if meditation doesn't suit someone, maybe something else. So that seems, yeah, I really like that idea. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that about there being different options because everybody is different and by no means do I want to force anyone into yoga or meditation if if it's not comfortable, and especially when trauma is present, you have to be really mindful of that because sometimes when even you know when trauma is in the body, things like mindfulness meditation can actually exacerbate it. Um, and so finding the type of yoga, the type of meditation, the type of exercise or movement, whether it's walking around the block a couple times, you know, or whether it's going rock climbing, you know, pay attention to your body. I think that's really what, what I, my mission in life is, is to help people understand that when they're grieving and they can't necessarily quite get to where they're ready to do the deep grief work of, you know, meaning making and continuing bonds in those early days, weeks, months, years, if the body's offline, the one thing you can do is take care of this physical body you know, as you would take care of, um, you know, someone who's dependent on you. So putting the right food into it, getting hydrated, getting sleep, moving, but do it your way. There's not one right way. And so I'm guessing some people haven't maybe done yoga or meditation before when they come to you. What are, the, what are their experiences and maybe are there hesitations coming in that, you know, some new people to this may experience? 
I get a lot of people who show up because they feel like they've tried everything else and nothing's worked. So it's that, you know, I don't know what to do. I heard this is available, so I'm going to try it. So it's like, you know, some of the people, other people already have a yoga or meditation practice and know it's helped them before. But for those people who are really new to it, a, a lot of them, you know, again, we start with how's your body doing? And based on what they tell me, I will craft a practice. If I'd say most of the people, when I first start working with them, aren't getting sleep. And again, this is why I'm so glad to be talking on the Grief Dreams podcast and why it was so great talking to Joshua on my podcast, because I do get people who are um, either afraid to sleep or who have, you know, disturbed sleep. So I think that's really the first place I start. And there's a few different ways I, I address it. But then sometimes I get people where maybe they're a year or two or five, or um, I can even think of a, of a woman that I saw and her, her sibling died when she was probably about six. And now she's in her thirties and much like me, hadn't really addressed the grief um, and I think with sibling loss, with the parents grieving, it can be really, really disenfranchised um, when the when the um, sibling that lives is young. And, you know, here we are and she's in her 30s and we're processing through movement and through dialogue of what's coming up through the movement, how she feels about those, the way her parents were with her in those early days or how she misses her sister, even being able to have a room where somebody will listen to her talk about her sister without kind of dismissing it, which if you aren't, if you aren't comfortable with grief, it's so easy for people out in the world to just be like, Oh, but that happened a long time ago, which of course, those of us who've had a major loss know it doesn't matter. You know, time is not the factor here. So there's many reasons why people show up and I just try to listen to why they're with me and give them what they need, whether it's getting the body to move again, whether it's normalizing the very uncomfortable feeling of grief and saying, no, this is, unfortunately, it's normal to feel, you know, confused. It's normal to feel overwhelmed. You'll be, you know, you'll be best served if you acknowledge what you need and give yourself what you need. I don't know if that answered the question, but I hope it did. Yeah, it did. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's just so much. That's what I love about this work. You know, I, I'm sure you, you all probably get the same question. People are like, how can you be around grief all the time? I wouldn't choose anything else because the growth, the connection, the love, the stories of their special person – I feel very lucky and honored to get to witness that and to hold that container. That's beautiful. And we need more people like that in our society because that's, you know, the one thing that I think people hide their grief is because they don't have that support around them. So it's nice that you're one of the people that can hold space for people as they go through the stuff and you have some answers to their questions that they're wondering because we don't really get we we don't get trained in what happens when we're grieving, what happens with our minds and, and how to regulate those. So I'm really interested because you mentioned it twice so far about the grief-related insomnia. So could you talk about that a little bit? 
it just seems to be so incredibly common or, you know, where it's grief related insomnia at night. And then I can't get out of bed to go to work during the day. And like Sean was saying, you know, we still have bills to pay. You may still have dependents. Um, if you are handling an estate, which I, after my stepdad died, I, I had to handle his estate, which would be just hard, even if someone didn't die, like that's, that's just hard work. So trying to, to find that way back into balance where you're sleeping at night and awake during the day, what happens a lot of times is we lay in bed and we realize we're not sleeping. Okay. So that's the first thing. But then we just lay there and we're like, oh my gosh, I'm not sleeping. This is awful. I can't sleep. And we go through that for hours and hours. Um, I'll oh, I have a smartphone. I'll pick that up and I'll read the news. You know, all these things that we do uh, when we're not sleeping, whether we're grieving or not. And so the there's a practice that it's almost like counting sheep, honestly. You know, sometimes I kind of think of it that way, but there's a meditation practice where you focus your attention on one thing and repeat it over and over again. And that could be a word or it could be counting or it could be something like progressive muscle relaxation where you tense and release your major muscle groups, you know, sequentially. Doing things like that can actually help people sleep pretty quickly. So I teach a few different methods. One is I teach basic good sleep hygiene. So we were talking about coffee, you know, no coffee after, um, you know, after three try to really not drink alcohol if you can. And if you do, make sure it's early and and a minimal amount. Don't take your smartphone into your bedroom. Keep your TV off. You know, I don't even have a TV in my bedroom. It is forbidden. Get some exercise during the day, even if it's moderate. You know, these basic things that you can do to, to set your body up for sleep. And then before bed, do some type of deep relaxation practice. Put on uh, YouTube has some really great sleep music that goes for eight, nine hours that I recommend. You can just kind of Google that and it'll show up. You don't have to pay for it or anything. Although I guess now they have the ads. So, you know, I say that. So you might have to have the YouTube bread. I don't know. I'm not here to sell that. But, you know, look for something where you're going to be able to get a nice long period of time of of sleep music, you know, not something that's going to make you want to jump up and dance. So there's a lot of aspects to it. But I think the biggest thing people need to know is you do have a lot more power over your ability to get sleep than we are taught. You know, we're not really taught sleep hygiene growing up, are we? Just like we're not taught about grief. Um, once people start getting good sleep again, other things start to come back online. You might feel less depressed, less anxious, less forgetful. And we know that unfortunately, after you've had a major loss, you know, there's a period about six months to a year uh, where, you, you know, you tend to, you might be more prone to get into an accident or even get sick or, or unfortunately even die. And so I think one of the big things, one of the big factors that can help us with that is getting good sleep. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> sleep has, has been shown that it affects our reaction time. So mm -hmm. if you're not getting sleep, no wonder you're getting an accident. So your reaction time's a lot less. So yeah, there's uh, a lot of great tips that you shared in what people can do. 
And I know some people, they're just like, they're bred on having the TV going when they're falling asleep or, you know, looking at the news before bed. But like, it's like people need to know that that actually affects your melatonin levels that actually help mm -hmm. you go to bed. And so it's about limiting those and, and making a, a new routine where you're basically telling your body, this is the space for sleep. Yeah. Even those, you know, the light, you know, you mentioned the melatonin, like the color of light in your room you know, blue light is activating, red light, uh, from what I understand, uh, is one of the better colors. If you need a light to see, red is a little bit better in terms of not activating uh, your brain to be awake. And we are surrounded. My husband and I were talking about just the light noise in the house from power cords and the printer and the alarm clock. And what can we do to reduce the light noise in our house? at night, even after everything's supposedly off. And maybe back in the 70s, this wasn't such a problem growing up for me uh, to date myself, but now it's everywhere. And these little tiny things, you know, can can really impact your sleep. I have a, uh, outside my room, I have one of those uh, street lights. And mm. so it's like, even that, so it's not even like your own house, but like you're outside. So you gotta shut the blinds to make sure you actually have that darkness to to set their routine but yeah it's very interesting and i said that when we talked about dreams dreams is another big reason why people are afraid to go to bed is because of these dreams that can reduce their their wanting for for sleep because these images can be so horrifying to them that they'd rather like try to avoid it than figure it out absolutely and i think you know learning what your research has shown about dreams could maybe alleviate some of that fear or the practice of, um, what did you call it? Reframing the dreams, mm. um, you know, not to turn the tables, but maybe you could talk about that because that's something that I'm definitely going to be sharing with my, with my students moving forward is, you know, that question, what dream do you want to have and kind of trying to implant that. Well, it's a great question to ask. And yeah, if people want to check out your podcast, episode 15, you can hear about me <laughs> talking about the subject even more. Um, but this is about you. This isn't about oh, me. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm always trying to get more information out of people. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, for, for me, most of the clients that I've worked with, it hasn't so much been traumatic dreams, although there have been a handful along the way, but that concern of not not having dreams. Um, but again, uh, you know, I'd say probably 80% of the people I work with initially, it's, we're not even worried about dreams. We're just worried about sleep. We're worried about physical tension in the body. You know, that's another thing that can keep people from falling asleep is pain and grief can make your muscles tight. It can make your joints ache. Um, you know, for me, I know when I'm stressed out, whether it's from grief or life, um, my arms will hurt because I clench my fist and I also clench my jaw. And so kind of knowing your body pattern of stress, at, which will probably change after you've experienced a major loss. So the, the, the aches and pains that maybe you've had before might feel worse, um, or you might have a new pain. You might feel that pain in your chest, which we often associate kind of with heartache. And so, you know, tending to those directly is, is important. And one thing that I was taught in my thanatology program at Hood College 
was when people are in the early days of grief and they first come to see you, it's a good idea to recommend that they go get, get a checkup, you know, just go see your, your naturopath or primary care doctor to just make sure, you know, everything's okay. Because again, things get exacerbated by the stress of loss. Not only is your heart broken, but your body is probably feeling a little worn down. But the good news is there's a lot of techniques and tools to help you come back from that. So it's probably not permanent. And there's a lot of research that shows just a few minutes of meditation or yoga or movement can quickly change how the body feels and quickly bring the mind back into a state of balance. So if anyone's listening to this and they're like, oh, yoga, meditation, exercise, I've got to carve out, you know, hours a day and practice for years. It's not true at all. You try it for five minutes and you might be stunned at how different you feel. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I totally agree with that. And uh, it just seems like, you know, I've been in those situations. Um, I used to work uh, jobs that required me to work shift work. So I was really focused on getting the best sleep and I, I used to do I used to do everything that you mentioned, you know, and more, but it becomes a vicious cycle. Um, if you don't get to sleep, then your days, you know, you, it might affect your mood and then you kind of drag on during the day and then you go lay your head back uh, on the bed at night you, and, you know, you don't get some sleep you, again, another night of, of not sleeping. And it's adding to that anxiety and that stress was just going to prevent you from getting that sleep in the, you know, again. And I think just uh, if I could suggest that just people just take it easy on themselves. Number one is realize that, you know, not try not to put, you know, that that added stress onto onto your brain uh, when it comes down to not getting sleep. And then just try these techniques and try them. You know, you don't have to do them all at the same time, but do them one by one kind of, you know, study, see, see what's changed in your life. See, okay. Tonight, I'm going to take a, ba- a warm bath before bed. Okay, let's see how that affects me tonight. And then just go, e- again, go easy on yourself and then realize that this is a process. And uh, again, the best thing is to just kind of be aware of your routine, uh, I think, for the most part. Again, you, you mentioned a, a really interesting thing, which is just getting started in some of these things. And, and then also like a short time, you know, getting, you know, meditating five minutes before bed or something or maybe doing a couple yoga postures and then just evaluating and trying to try to see how that a cha- uh, that affects you in your body in your mind. I think that's a great way to, to get into it without feeling overwhelmed. And what you're bringing up really is that idea of self-compassion and being, you know, being gentle with yourself and patient and kind to yourself, which hey, we were talking about how we we aren't taught really how to be with grief, we aren't really taught how to sleep. You're most certainly most people. I know there are some, but most people were not, uh, you know, there isn't a class at school called self-compassion, right, in most places. And yet it's probably one of the most important pieces when we are grieving, because if you can be your own best support system by not adding suffering on top of suffering, by I so often hear the phrase like, what's wrong with me? I can't sleep. I'm doing things wrong or I just can't get it together. All this self, self blame. You know, there are thousands and millions, I'm sure, of people in the world right now who are grieving, 
who are also having that same experience. It's not because there's something wrong with you. Um, it's because you're just human and the human body and the human mind and the human heart are wired to love. And that means we're wired to grieve. And so be as nice as you can to yourself. You have my permission to do it. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's interesting too, even the place, your environment has a big impact. So I'm guessing if your spouse or partner has died, it might be beneficial to sleep in a different room just because of the triggers within the, the environment. And so it's just like trying to find a way to get that rest and try different things, as you guys were saying, um, as you move forward. So I think this is very interesting. Have you ever had, when you've had your, when your uncle died, did you have sleep issues as a child or do you remember? So I, I don't remember it right around when he died. I, I do kind of remember when I think about me at that time and my mother and I, by the way, talk about like that time period all the time. And you know, just for point of reference, that was in 1977, people. That was a long time ago. But, you know, we talk about that day that she told me and, you know, driving to my grandparents and that week. And then we came home and then we went back for Christmas. And I kind of picture myself as this really wide eyed kind of deer in the headlights child. I will say that I remember when I was an adolescent around 12 or 13. And I stayed at my grandmother's a lot. And um, when my uncle died, he was working on the Alaskan pipeline. And so he lived out there, but, you know, I associated my grandmother's house with him. And when I was an adolescent, I would come to her house and just have this like obsessive thinking about Doug. You know, I just couldn't stop thinking about him. I wanted to know more. I wanted her to drive me by where he worked. You know, even though I never visited him at work, I just liked going by. And I wasn't sleeping that week. And what I remember is one night I was laying there and I wasn't sleeping and I wasn't sleeping. And I got up and I went through. I'm I only sharing this now because she lived till 99 and a half, which is great. I miss her dearly. Um, but I would not have shared this before she died. I went through her papers and I, so it was like, I couldn't sleep. And so I decided to do something about it, which was get information. I'm a, I'm a researcher. Like that's just my heart, even at that age. And I found the police report on my uncle's death and Something about reading that police report, um, it wasn't happy. It had information in it that I did not know before, that no one had told me before. But something about knowing, filling in those blanks helped me settle. And so after finding that, and of course I never told her, you know, I found it. I do remember the rest of the visit, I was more settled and more at peace because I think I had a better image of what happened. And there was also when I was a child, like when I was seven and my mother told me I wasn't completely convinced he was dead, which is part of that magical thinking that happens when we're a child, which I was seven. So to me, death wasn't yet necessarily a permanent thing, but at the same time, it went beyond that. Um, where 
some things were said that led me to question whether my uncle was really the person that they buried or not. Like it could have been mistaken identity in my mind. And I think reading that police report clarified for me that it, it was really my uncle. And again, as sad as it was and as disturbing as the information was, it sometimes having the truth can be helpful. It just reminded me of um, that story reminded me of uh, one of my uncles who who died in India and like he lived there as well, but he kind of just disappeared and um, nobody really knew what had happened to him. And, you know, my parents, had, they were just kind of like, you know, oh, you know, he, he's just disappeared and, you know, and they didn't really explain too much. But later I found out that he, he did have a mental illness and um, apparently he had, I guess, taken some drugs and then just overdosed. But uh, there was a lot of missing pieces behind the story. Um, even even revolving around like who found him and at one point they did eventually find the body but um yeah it, it's until things are settled or if you don't have information you know there there's aspects of uh, kind of grieving that that it changes the way you grieve for sure even just the thought of you know my uncle and what what happened and what went wrong and you know what did he have anybody to help him um you know was he alone there's all these kind of questions pop up and i get what you're what you're saying with that for sure yeah i think it was all those questions were keeping me up and i was at a point you know my life where as a kid i think i probably was a little more like okay you know like i said that kind of okay this is this is happening to me and then i hit that that age where it was like, I need to know the answers now. And we know that when you're a child with children, if you don't give them information and their holes in the story, they're going to fill it in with the worst case scenario. As one of my teachers, Dr. Terry Martin, my thanatology professor often said, though, you can give people information without hitting them over the head hard. You know, there's gentle ways. And of course, you want to be age appropriate and that kind of thing. And and so, but when you're young and you think your uncle's just wandering around, there's questions, right? You know, I thought he was still working on the pipeline. They just couldn't find him. Um, so I think that's important for parents to take into account is, is know that the child is probably filling in the blanks. And one good way to help figure out what they're thinking is to ask them, let them tell you, well, what do you think is, is going on? Um, that's a skillful, skillful way. Interestingly, back to that police report, I had to write a paper when I was in my thanatology program. So that was in the like 2010-ish and I wrote a paper about my uncle's death and let my mother read it. My mother's like, there wasn't a police report. She didn't even know there was a police report until I wrote that paper, you know, decades after I'd found it. So it's kind of interesting in families, the legacy of information and what gets shared and what doesn't. But of course, I wasn't going to call up my mom and be like, you know, hey, mom, I'm 12 and I'm going through grandma's papers. Like, that's not not acceptable <laughs> behavior, you know, but but I always assumed she had seen it. But my grandmother had hid that even from 
um, her own daughter and my mother thinks probably even from um, my grandfather at the time. You must have been a fan of what was the I'm thinking of the Hardy Boys, but what was like the girl version? <laughs> well, there was Nancy Drew, but uh, I yeah. never read <laughs> Nancy Drew. I read the Bobsy Twins, which is like the <laughs> younger version. And that's actually where my fear of clowns comes from. Oh, it's from a Bobsy Twins book. There was a scary clown in an amusement park. Um, but I'm doing some immersion therapy with myself on that because I feel like I'm a meditation teacher. I talk to people about phobias. So um, I have worked. The fact I can even talk about scary clowns is a huge step. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Motivate yourself. You're doing I great. Do. I do. I'm like, this has got to stop. This is just. This is We've got a guest uh, <laughs> guest on. We're going to bring him on right now. Oopsie. <laughs> I think I could. I feel like I could do it. I feel like I'm almost ready. Yeah. Maybe baby steps. Yeah. Talk to a clown first. Well, my baby step was there was a giant life-size animated clown in a store at Halloween. And I hugged it and got it on video. Um, and I did scream and run away after a couple minutes, but I've watched that video and I'm like, nothing really that bad happened. <laughs> well, those McDonald's commercials must have been really traumatizing because I remember like definitely hyped up uh, that clown a lot more in the 70s and 80s. Than yeah. They now. yeah, it's true. He was everywhere, wasn't he? <laughs> <Ronald>. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I think it's I think it's really interesting too. You talk about secrets and what families hold to try to I think maintain a legacy of mm -hmm. an individual. Um, they're so afraid that that may damage their reputation or damage them in some way that then they have to acknowledge it. Right. So you know, I think it's I think it's an interesting topic of of just like searching and trying to find your answers and trying to ask the questions if you're interested. And you're right. And I think back then, talking to children about grief wasn't really a thing now it's getting a little bit more popular to talking to children about the loss and there's a lot of like programs online and free resources for parents that was never around before before it was just like you just don't do it right and i will say my mother i give her a ton of credit for she did a really good job like one of the things that came out of that paper because i think it was like a children and grief course was just how my mother somehow did everything the right way. Um, again, there were some things that were missing, but I now understand why I wasn't told them. It was because it was really traumatic information. You know, it was a suicide. She did tell me that she didn't say die by suicide. I think back then it was probably, she probably said he killed himself. and uh, But she did it in a way where I remember feeling Sad, very, very sad he was dead, but also kind of like, huh, people do that, which is a lot for a seven-year-old to to take in. But it also, I think it really taught me the preciousness of life and probably gave me a lot of empathy and compassion because I felt really bad that my uncle felt so bad that that, that happened. And just the way she treated me was so on par with love the rest of the family i'm not saying they treated me bad i'm not putting them down but like my grandmother her son had died by suicide that was that was her world and she needed to really be you know deal with that and and she was also the the church secretary so that that put on i think a lot of another whole layer of guilt and shame 
um, that may have not been there had she had another job. Um, but you're right. It is becoming more and more common and, and there's so many more resources out there for parents, for teachers, for therapists to help children deal with loss, um, which thank goodness for that. But a shout out to my mom for doing a pretty good job. And look at look where I am today. <laughs> so you're on the Grief you know, Dreams podcast. All right. On the Grief Dreams podcast. <laughs> so, you know, something she did got me to hear. Um, and I hope I helped her too, because it was her brother and. I think a lot of why I do the work I do and my, my dad's brother also died when I was um, two and a half. And although I don't um, remember Don, I definitely miss ha I miss the fact that I don't have a Don in my life. And, and it meant both sides of the family were grieving when I was growing up. My both, you know, all four grandparents, both parents, everybody was bereaved. And so I think part of why I do this work is because I want to prevent other people who are going through grief from not having the resources that they need from the dysfunction that can come out of um, grief when it's not handled skillfully. Yeah, I think you're doing a really good job. And I said the, the yoga meditation that's taking off too in the sense of our culture. So that's great that you're a voice of to help the, the bereaved use that in their life. A lot of times they may not even know that you can. And so according to what you've said so far, you've, you lost your uncle and then your stepdad. Have you had any other yeah. losses along the way? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, when my stepdad died, I was, it was actually my last semester of thanatology school, as I like to call it. She was my non-credit practicum was getting through that. Um, I've had, you know, pet loss has been a really big one in my life. And we often talk about how that can be disenfranchised, especially by people aren't pet who who are not pet owners, but I think because I was an only child and because I had those loss, those early losses, dogs have always been my mainstay, my emotional support. You know, parents are grieving, the dog can snuggle. Um, and so, you know, there was, there was a two important dogs in my life when, when Doug died, his dog was a big, linking object, if you will, you know, she continued the bond and she wound up dying right around the same time. My grandfather died in 1988, which was right when my parents announced their divorce. And so that, that year was just a cluster of loss, you know, all my loss. It seems like with my losses, a lot of times they're really grouped together. And so, you know, I had a non-death loss of, of parents divorcing. I had the you know, Vera dying, I had granddaddy dying, I was graduating from high school and not quite sure what the heck that meant. And then fast forward to when Tom died, which was 2009, my stepfather, and then my dog died a week after that, a dog he and I and my mom shared. Um, she died a week after that. And then my grandfather died. I was still dealing with Tom's estate. I think it was three months after he died. And then my grandmother fell and got diagnosed with vascular dementia a few months after that. And one of my thanatology professors, Dr. Dana Cable, died. So, and, and then my yoga therapy teacher died. So it's just like these unfoldings. And even though a lot of times people like teachers or friends get disenfranchised, you know, 
you know, or they don't get acknowledged as losses. To me, I get, I get such a connection with people that I learn from that, that those losses, they hit home. Um, so yeah, I've, I've had a few, I've had a, a friend die from an overdose, which was surreal because we were definitely in a place where we didn't want to believe that that's what was going on. There you go. That's, that's part of the list. <laughs> well, wow, that's a pretty long list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But look at you. You're still here. You're smiling. I'm still here. Yeah. And yeah. you're able to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So I think it's amazing the work you're doing that you can be so resilient in having so much loss, but yet you're still a very powerful force in the world. Of oh, thank you. Talking about love and peace and like, you know, the world's not evil. It's not a bad place. Like there's some good and there's, there's hope to be able to be the best self despite all this other external circumstances that occur. So man, good for you to be able to be who you are in spite of all that. <laughs> Thank you. I will say, I think it's important for people to know, uh, for, for anybody who's around a professional grief person, it doesn't mean that our grief is different. You know, you still, you still grieve the same way. I think what is different is we tend to be like, you know, there are those moments where you're like, but wait, I have a degree in this. You know, I should just be, I should just be able to like be okay. And then you're like, wait, what am I saying? I would never say that to any, never would say that to anyone else. This is grief. This hurts. You know, it's not, it's, you know, just like doctors can still get sick, you know, we can still get our heart broken, but you're right. There is a lot of hope. And I think for me, the hope has been connecting with other people who've had losses of all types, um, whether the loss is the same or different. It's, it's part of this shared human experience and people have been grieving for, you know, bajillions of years. I'm not an anthropologist. So I don't know the exact, the exact number there, but, but we've still survived and we've survived because of each other, you know, because we support each other, because we listen and care and because we form new bonds, you know, we form new bonds with, it doesn't mean that it replaces the old one by any means. But love is limitless. There's a lot of space for love in our lives. And that's the beauty of what say like what you're talking about is that you're allowing love in. And I, I know with so much loss, it's really easy to close the heart and say, I don't want any more of this. So I'm just not gonna like love anymore. I'm just gonna be my own person and you know, avoid relationships. But it seems to me that who you are is you embrace relationships in spite knowing that they may die one day. And, you know, I think that's a beautiful aspect of who you are. And I think that's, you know, it really comes off through the episode. Well, thank you. I think the fact that people will die one day that are in my life makes me be nice to them today. <laughs> it's a good reminder. <laughs> you know? that's, a good, uh, that's a good tip. Just uh, everybody you see around, you just, just picture them, you know, dying eventually. Yeah. You know, and even though that might seem morose, it actually, I think, keeps me more loving. Rather well, it keeps than you in the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it keeps you in the moment. That's sort of what your meditation is all about, too, and, yeah. and grounding. It keeps you present in where you are and not get too lost in sort of the future. So I think it's it's really cool. I'm, I'm interested, since you have so much loss, have you had any dreams of any of those people? So what's funny is since since I've talked to you, you know, I've been trying to think about this. And there's one I definitely remember of my grandmother. And it it felt it felt like a visitation dream. You know, it felt like she was there. And 
all I can remember from it because I didn't write it down. Now I want to be so much better about my dreams after, after learning more about what you all do. Um, but she was kind of standing in the doorway of what was like her house, but probably wasn't, you know, dreams are all ethereal and strange, but it was, I think it reminded me of just all those summers where I'd go to her house and she'd call me back in for dinner. And it wasn't even that she said anything. It was just that felt sense of grandmotherly love, you know, of presence. And so I've, I've thought, you know, you'd asked me on our podcast if I'd, or after our podcast, if I'd had dreams, I believe I've had others. I do. I, at least I want to believe that I've had others that I've forgotten. And so my my mission now is to get a grief, a grief dream or get a dream journal and pay attention because remembering that one dream of my grandmother, who again, she died at 99 and a half, but for many, many years, she had vascular dementia. So her personality, the personality I knew had died many years before. And for those of you who have, you know, lived with someone who has dementia, it's a, it's a really, again, surreal experience. And so after she died, having this woman who couldn't, well, she could communicate to me. I, I definitely felt a lot of love from her. Even, even the day she died, like I felt like there was a moment of connection that, that had been missing, but having her back, like as normal grandma cooking dinner, instead of the woman who wasn't quite making a lot of sense that it sometimes struggled. It was a really, it was a lovely experience and I want more of those. Well, that's beautiful. And it's beautiful. You're able to see her one more time in her healthy form, which she used to be. And so your last memory isn't one of her with dementia. It's, it's one of her basically standing and like watching you kind of thing. Yeah. You know, calling me and come eat some pot pie. <laughs> want some iced tea or Southern. <laughs> but it also, you know, thinking about that dream and thinking about that comfort that you get. I was, I was thinking about a meditation practice called meta meditation, which is the practice of compassion and loving kindness. And the idea in that is you bring the image of someone to your mind and you start usually with someone that fills you with the sense of unconditional love. So it might be a family member, but usually it's going to be a spiritual being or a pet or a mentor because, you know, those, those are the people that are really close to us are the people we tend to lash out at too. Um, so someone that's like consistent love. And from what I've been taught, you're not supposed to use the image of someone who's died. And I think that's because uh, they don't want you to get upset during that. Like this, that's the first step of the practice. And you're supposed to be just fooling yourself up with this joyous love. But I found that, you know, years after my grandmother died, and it was probably after that dream, although I don't know, um, I did start sneaking her in as my first, my first person, that touchstone of, of joy and love, because yeah, you know, I had some beefs with her around how she related to my uncle's death about, she made up a story. She would just tell people he was robbed and shot. You know, she couldn't even speak his truth of his suffering, but, but all that's fallen away. You know, I don't hold that baggage anymore. That was her protecting herself and keeping herself safe. 
but that grandma energy just can fill me up with love and joy. And so maybe it's almost like creating a waking dream in a way different in that with dreams, you're not, I guess in most cases, though you could probably speak better to this, you're not choosing necessarily like I'm going to dream about this right now. But in meditation, you could say, I'm going to bring her image to mind and fill myself with warmth. So there's maybe some parallels. You know, one is is less of a conscious choice and one is. But I, it'd be kind of neat to look at those two things side by side, dreams and meditation. Yeah, it's, uh, it is interesting. And I there is a, I guess you probably could do it too. There's a technique where you can go back like a meditation, you go back into the dream. So you can go back into that dream that you had and that in itself is going to bring the love and then you can carry on that, that whatever that, uh, that dream would have been kind of thing. And that's just, yeah, it's just another way of doing it. Another way of Mm -hmm. sort of bringing them in. And because the dreams are such a, there could be such a beauty there that we remember. It's an easy way to sort of find that feeling because times it's just so hard to, figure out okay what is peace i'm so you know life is so chaotic like the concept is so strange but these dreams can really provide a thing a gauge on like what what you can feel like in a peaceful state yeah i was talking to my husband last night about his grief dreams of his dog woody that um he has a really small family and you know for him two dogs have been kind of one of the really stable points in life and he was, we were talking about a dream he had about Woody. He's a dog that died, uh, I guess it's been about four years. And and how, you know, just remembering the dream of Woody laying like this big Doberman pincher who loved to just lay on my husband's lap like a lap dog. You know, just going back to that dream, I could tell, you know, looking at his face, like there was joy, even though we miss him terribly and it took a while to get there. Just remembering that you even had the dream seemed to have kind of a positive impact. Whereas I feel like before that dream, maybe talking about Woody was a little, um, tended a little more towards the sad, which is okay. I'm not pathologizing sad and grief by any means, but, you know, I feel like now he felt like, yeah, I had a little more time. He said, I had a little more time with him. That's what it felt like. Yeah, that's that seems to be the power of uh, having a, a positive grief dream like that. Like it has a lasting effect, and you know can really uh, seems in, in in some people change the course of their life after as well. Seems like you know having something so special and, and near and dear to you after after loss. It's something you can pull from if you're having a tough day and you just think about that. Um, I don't think there's any harm in that, and. Uh, even incorporating it in yoga, I think, um, I think, like you said, like if if the object, I think it's e- each individual person has to kind of look at the deceased person they want to use, and, and and hopefully it's fitting for that time. I mean, if they're someone that they do have that uh, large amount of love and affection for, but if that's the case, then I think that's great. You know, I've did that actually <laughs> recently. <laughs> I did it in yoga practice for sure. I was. Uh, it was at the end of the session and um you know the the, the person's like okay well you know if they're mine with people that you love and stuff like that and i was thinking about my grandparents and it just i just had that relationship with them where you know it's warm it's loving you know it's inviting it's secure you know i can drop all my problems off at the door and walk right in you know and and that's 
that's the relationship I have. And I'm sure a lot of people have that with their loved ones, with their grandparents. And you seem to have that with your grandmother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Grandparents were, you know, I don't know, safe harbor in a way. <laughs> in some sense, you could get away with more anyway. <laughs> and they fed you. <laughs> Again, not that my mother didn't. But, um, yeah, but I, I think you're right. It's, it's, it's right timing, you know, and these meditation and yoga that we're doing now is really a mashup of ancient practices and very, very recent developments. So Mm. the yoga and meditation we're doing now is not the identical form, or at least for most people, I shouldn't say that for everyone, but is not going to be the same form they were doing, you know, three, 5,000 years ago. And so I think modifying a practice, I mean, I think Buddha would be perfectly happy with you modifying the practice as long as it's alleviating your suffering and not causing you more suffering. And I often get clients and students who will create practices on their own. You know, they'll just kind of be like, I just, I was at home and suddenly I did this. And it's like this whole new way of, of thinking about meditation or thinking about relaxation that worked for them. And it's like, great. Did it bring you peace? Wonderful. You know, there's there's nothing wrong with that. Make it yours. And I think that's true with grief. You have to make your grief your own. And don't listen to people tell you what to do. You know, listen to yourself because our grief experience is as unique as the relationship we have with the person. It's very special. All right. So we're at the last question of the interview and you know what it is. (laughs) So what dream, if you could tonight, would you have of someone who has died? I have to pick one person. You can have all of them if you want. Okay, good. So (laughs) I think, you know, I think I picture everybody I've ever loved who died, including animals, except for maybe my lizards. I don't feel as tied to them. So they can just (laughs) They can stay. We have had many lizard funerals in my life. But the dogs, the cats, the people. And I see us at this lake. And there's picnic tables and fried chicken. And we're just having a great time connecting. And and even people who haven't met each other for my life are meeting each other. And it's just a big love fest. And probably piles of puppies everywhere. <laughs> And who's doing king, or is it like a potluck? Everyone brings their own. Oh, dish. it's totally a potluck. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, there's probably multiple multiple types of chicken, and you know, this is where the grandparents come in. There's, uh, you know, like potato salad and stuff my grandmother would have made on picnics, and it's that family. Com- you know what it is? It's family comfort food that's showing up in the stream. Which and I'm sure is relevant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, food's always a great, uh, great image to have. Uh, and so, when uh, so you have all these people, do you want them the age they are, they were when they died? Do you want them to be aged as they would have been, or do you want them all to be the same age, like younger, like thirty? So, in my mind's eye, they're all the age they were when they died. Mm. I don't know if that means anything, but I'm just noticing that that's like that feels right to me. Um, taking. You know, the idea of taking my grandmother back to, uh, well, okay, here's another thing you have to know, though. The people in my family age pretty darn well. 
So even though like her mind was gone, I mean, she was taken off of hospice the day before she died and she was 99 and a half, but they had no way to keep her on hospice because she technically wasn't dying. Like that's how healthy my genes are. And so a lot of these people, when they died, they weren't necessarily physically struggling. They were mentally struggling. My, you know, my stepfather, um, I mean, he died from complications from a surgery, but he had bipolar. So I picture him in the dream kind of without that, you know, where he's in a very chill mood. I picture Doug just, you know, laughing. And remember that was 1977. So he had like long curly hippie hair. I like that. I like that image. Yeah, it's cool. It's a, it's a, as you're asking me and I'm telling you, I have a big smile on my face and I, I have an embodied sense of warmth and love. Oh, and now nice. hunger. <laughs> yeah, I'm hungry. I'm like potato salad. What else? What else? Chicken. All right. Fried chicken. Man, Sweet I gotta tea. come to, I gotta come to one of your offices. <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. That's funny. And then the last question is, what would you want to be wearing? Like, would you want something special? Do you have like something that you you see yourself in? Yeah, I'm in like really comfy jean shorts and a t-shirt. I'm like, I mean, this is a really casual affair. Nobody is, um, there is no pretension here. This is just, we are out, we're eating fried chicken for goodness sakes. And we don't want to worry about ruining our clothes. We just want to you want to eat and enjoy, you know, I think of that word fellowship <laughs> that was used so often at my grandma's church. You know, we are just connecting and and everybody is just natural and smiling. Um, you know, it's funny because the one the one person in my family I can imagine that would show up with their hair done, their makeup done is still alive. So she's not in that yet. <laughs> um, but she if she were, she would be done up. But everybody else is pretty chill. <laughs> sounds amazing, Heather. Uh, and uh, that sounds like my kind of a grief dream <laughs> that I'd want to go to. <laughs> Maybe I just might pop in. You can come. Well, you're still around, but you can come in as like a. I'll do it anyways. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's all cool. good. Yeah, I'll creep in. I'll bring some. <laughs> you're from Maryland, so mm -hmm. I think you have good seafood over there. Maybe. Yeah, we have crab cakes. We're known for yeah. Our crab cakes. Yeah. I'll think about bucket of crabs <laughs> you <bucket of> <laughs> gotta get dirty Sounds at this lovely. picnic you do you do it's it's very chill and it's, it's funny because as i think of it you know I, I see my my teacher dana cable in there and even though i wasn't you know i didn't know him for a long time he's still at he's still at the picnic and we did have a potluck at his house like as a, the thanatology program and so i think I, it's kind of neat because it's almost like each person in that dream, there's been a time where I've probably had fried chicken around them or something like, you know what I mean? Or had a potluck around them. I guess that's just kind of a theme in my own life. Yeah. It's kind of interesting yeah, and I, to look at I, that I like too. How you, I, I like how you bring in people like teachers and, and instructors. Cause like even in my life, they've, you know, impacted me where they might not know, you know, I thought about this the other day. I should probably call some of those teachers, you know, see yeah. how they're doing, but it's uh you know they won't even know what they've what how they've changed my life or impacted and i'm sure uh with with you as well so i think it's it's very apt to have uh you know uh teachers or, or people instructors in your life who who've died in in your grief dream they have helped make me what i am today and they've helped 
helped me on my journey too. You know, they've taught me a lot about myself. So I welcome them into my fold, into my, For sure. into my picnic. <laughs> For sure. Heather, um, it's been it's been a really great interview, really good podcast. And uh, especially with, uh, I really think, uh, I really love when, when you were describing, you know, meditation and yoga and how we can incorporate healing for, uh, from grieving into that. Um, I think it's it's time for that as well. Um, so I'm really happy that you're doing um, stuff on that subject. Could you uh, shout out your handles and where people can find you in your podcast? Yes, absolutely. So the podcast is called the Mindfulness and Grief Podcast. So you can find it wherever you get this podcast. We're like neighbors in the podosphere. That's um, it. <laughs> my my website is mindfulnessandgrief.com and you'll find free guided meditations and really great articles about grief and loss as long as well as my um, online monthly meditation groups. And you can find me on Twitter, Heather Stang MA. Not trying to be pretentious with my masters there, but there's another Heather Stang out there. Um, Instagram, Mindful Grief Quotes. And Facebook, search for Heather Stang, and you will find my page there. Excellent stuff. So if you're listening and you want to get some information, some tips, and just uh, some techniques on how to, how to, uh, improve your practice and, and get some help grieving um, and uh, from that and definitely check out Heather's um, podcast and also her Instagram and, and, and website uh, you can check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic uh, we added, added a donation button and our perks to those who donate uh, if you have Facebook you can join the grief dreams group you can share your dreams or hear more more dreams of others we are on Twitter and Instagram at Grief Dreams. And as always, we love to end our podcast with love and gratitude from us to you. introduced myself you have introduced yourself this is a very good conversation